from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Walter, Jennifer, Ariel, Chantel, Sonia, Linda, Teresa, my dear two Emmas, Jessica, John, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron or like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube, and also use Spotify. Consider watching on Spotify instead, as they have been kind enough to sponsor me, and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind ahead of time, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be on Timothy Cratcher. Timothy Wayne McBride was born in West Mahanoy Township, hope I didn't butcher that, Pennsylvania, on November 28th, 1944. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. As we've discussed many times over the years, 1944 is an important year with regards to World War II. This would be the year of the infamous D-Day, the day that 155,000 Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in France, making their way inward toward Paris, which then led to the liberation from Nazi control and occupation. The siege of Leningrad, or now St. Petersburg, finally ended this year. It started in 1941 when the city was surrounded by German and Finnish troops. It was blockaded and roads and trains were cut off. Leningrad was being defended by roughly 200,000 troops. The Nazis had targeted it for its symbolic significance as the home of the Russian Revolution and it being the manufacturing hub for the Soviet Union. Polish freedom fighters began fighting to liberate Warsaw from German occupation, and this fighting ended with 18,000 soldiers killed and a further 150,000 civilians murdered. But on a more positive note, in Britain, The Education Act lifted the ban on female teachers being able to get married. 
The U.S. government gave back the railroads to companies after labor disputes were settled. President Franklin Roosevelt signed the GI Bill of Rights into law this year. Sunscreen was created by a man named Benjamin Green in 1944. And lastly, Mahatma Gandhi was released from jail after being arrested for encouraging civil unrest and uprisings against the British at the height of the war. So this was the atmosphere that Timothy was born into. His parents were Charles McBride and Fern Yost. Now, Fern Yost's parents were George and Blanche Yost. Fern had four brothers and four sisters, so nine children total. Fern's family had been from the Barnesville area of Pennsylvania, which was originally built to support the nearby Rust Belt Industries and is also a part of the coal-rich region. Now, when it comes to Charles, his father, I wasn't really able to find any information about him at all. I did all of my usual digging, but could not find anything. All we really know about him is that when Timothy was around a year old, Charles abandoned his wife and child. So for the first few years of his life, his mother raised him as a single parent and the pair were forced to move around quite a bit during his early years. Then when Timothy was around five or six years old, Blanche met and married another man by the name of Bernie Cratcher, who adopted young Timothy and gave him his last name. The parents then went on to have two more children. Now, Timothy would later go on to say that his mother was very cold, distant, and unaffectionate his entire childhood from earliest memory. He said he hated his mother. At the tender age of six years old, he was caught stealing a bicycle and charged with petty theft. By 10 years old, sources stated that he had developed a rather unhealthy obsession with his mother, both emotionally and sexually. He simultaneously loved her, hated her, and was attracted to her. By the age of 13, he was already well-versed in engaging in voyeurism and exhibitionism. For those that might not know, voyeurism is the practice of gaining sexual pleasure from watching others when they are naked or engaging in sexual activity. Some go as far as getting pleasure from seeing the pain or distress of others, borderline sadism. Now, exhibitionism is displayed as extravagant behavior that is intended to attract attention to yourself and compulsion to display one's genitals to public. Timothy had begun wearing feminine clothing out in public, which for around 1957 was considered a huge no-no. He also began fondling women out in public as well. At just 15 years old, he was charged again with petty theft, but for what I wasn't able to find. So in 1962, at the age of 17, he got into a physical fight with his stepfather and his mother kicked him out. So he enlisted in the U.S. Navy Reserve. He was then sent to begin his basic training in Great Lakes, Illinois. And this was pretty much all I could find about his childhood. There isn't a ton of information, but what we do have is quite telling. So let's get into it. I'd love to say that 
Perhaps his father abandoning him and his mother affected him in a hugely negative way, but he was so small at the time, I'm not sure he would have even had any living memory of his biological father. Now, when it comes to his relationship with his adopted father, I couldn't find any information about how he got along with him other than the one fight, so we have nothing to go on there. I assume Bernie cared for him somewhat because he did adopt him when he wasn't legally required to, but as to what kind of person Bernie was, or his influence over Timothy, we have no idea. What we do know is that he was already displaying negative behaviors at a very young age, stealing being the main issue. According to BMC Psychology at biomedicalcentral.com, many childhood risk factors are known to be associated with children's future antisocial and criminal behavior, including children's conduct disorders and family difficulties, such as parental substance abuse. Primary school-aged children with symptoms of conduct disorders are at high risk of later antisocial and criminal behavior. Such behavior is associated with a wide range of childhood factors, including social and emotional characteristics of the child, community, neighborhood, and school factors. Much research has focused on the role of parenting behaviors, and a meta-analysis of 161 papers found that parenting factors most strongly linked to children's later delinquency were parental monitoring, psychological control, rejection, and hostility. And we know that his mother was cold and not affectionate as he described her, but shared genetic factors may also play a role and genetic influences on behavior can contribute to explanations of the apparent heritability of environmental stressors linked to conduct problems, such as maternal negativity and negative life events. Regardless if it is nature or nurture or a combination of the two, Timothy was headed down a negative path at quite a young age. So then by the age of 10, Timothy was displaying symptoms of the issue I think we've all heard of, Oedipus complex. I'm not saying that officially, but let's talk about it. Oedipus complex is the attachment of the child to the parent of the opposite sex, usually accompanied by envious and aggressive feelings toward the parent of the same sex. That last part, of course, we don't really know. There is also a desire for sexual involvement with the opposite sex parent, particularly a boy's attention to his mother. But I think it warrants mentioning that a boy's first love, in a very innocent way, is his mother under normal conditions, of course. And when that mother isn't providing what the son needs emotionally or physically, the resentment grows. We've seen this time and time again with the people we talk about. Some examples include Ed Gein, Edmund Kemper, Gary Ridgway. Some might even argue Ted Bundy to a degree, Jerry Brudos, and on and on. And then we have, during the early years of puberty, Timothy wearing feminine clothing, which would have ensured him being bullied in 1958, along with exposing his genitals to others as well as deriving pleasure from witnessing the suffering of others or watching others while they are being sexual. 
Experts say that teenage boys, which is the usual case, but not always, might simply start off in puberty wanting to see things out of natural sexual curiosity. Pubescent boys that have been studied for abnormalities are asked, how long has the peeping behavior been going on? Is there a pattern of behavior? If the behavior has been routinely going on for six months or more, there is a concern that the juvenile is starting to reinforce a negative sexual arousal pattern. Does the juvenile fantasize about peeping or go as far as thinking up means of observing that are furthering the secrecy, such as planting cameras? Is the juvenile having difficulty stopping the behavior and, in fact, is increasing the activity and taking significant risks while engaging in the activity such as masturbating? So again, with no information about his biological father, I have nothing to really evaluate there. We also only have Timothy's description of how his mother treated him, which was cold and uncaring, and he did say that he hated her as a child later in life. The stepfather adopted him when he was seven, but we don't know what kind of person Bernie was or his influence over Timothy. They apparently had to move around more than a dozen times throughout his childhood, which leads to another whole host of issues. What we do have is a very real and very troubling pattern of deviant behaviors from a very young age. And when you couple that with his unhealthy obsession with his own mother, we can imagine this isn't going to end well. So let's get back into it. So a year into his military career and at the tender age of 18, he married a young lady named Barbara Jean Koss, who was pregnant at the time of the marriage. Three months after getting married, he raped a woman, then stabbed her using 10-inch long scissors, seriously injuring her, but she did live. He then raped another woman before he was caught and arrested. He was convicted of rape and attempted murder and was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. During this, the Navy dishonorably discharged him. His wife gave birth to their daughter, Charlotte, and as far as my resources said, she never met her father. While Timothy was in prison, he and Barbara separated. At this point, Timothy was having intense fantasies of sexual abuse and rape on women, and a later therapist would tell him that these thoughts and actions were his way of acting out his anger toward his mother. He was transferred to a couple of different prisons in Illinois and the years passed by. When he was 29 years old, it was mentioned that he worked as an inmate emergency medical technician at a community hospital and was also taking college courses. He then graduated from Shawnee Community College with an associate's degree, all while in prison. In 1975, at the age of 30, he was working as an inmate EMT at Union County Hospital in Illinois. So it seems to me that while in prison, he was working to better himself. He spoke with a therapist. He earned an associate's degree, which takes a degree of self-discipline. He was helping people with medical emergencies in hospitals. All of this sounds great, actually. It sounds like he was really trying to turn himself around and give back to the community, if only that were the case. 
So in 1976, when Timothy was 31 years old, he was released from prison. He moved to Carbondale in South Illinois, which is near the kind of trifecta of Missouri, Illinois, and Kentucky. While living there, he enrolled at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, where he earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in the Administration of Justice with a minor in psychology. Most impressive. He found work as an ambulance driver for that county. But all of this positive forward movement didn't last, as later that same year, he attempted to rape a woman in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, just across the Mississippi River in a Walmart parking lot. In the spring of 1977, Timothy had already committed an untold number of burglaries, home invasions, and rapes. During one of the home invasions, he stole a 38 caliber pistol. At this point, he began traveling to various towns within a general area where he had no connections, stalking potential victims, and then when they were gone, he'd break into their homes and wait for them to return home or break in once they got there. Very Dennis Rader BTK of him, I must say. One such occasion, in August 1977, Mary Parsh, who had been at her husband's side while he lay in the hospital, left to go pick up her daughter, Brenda, from the airport. Brenda had been living in Wisconsin to be a fashion buyer, but flew to Cape Girardeau to visit with her parents and check on her dad. After Mary had picked Brenda up from the airport, they stopped by the house before going back to the hospital. Only they hadn't come back in the time Floyd had figured it would take, so he called the house. He later said that Brenda had answered the phone, but did not sound at all like herself. She seemed distracted. All she said to her father was, quote, I love you, Daddy, and the phone disconnected. Three days after Floyd had called and waited for his wife and daughter to come to the hospital, he was able to get a hold of a neighbor and ask them to go check on the girls, and they found them. Both women were lying face down naked on the bed in the master bedroom with their hands tied behind their backs. Both had been shot in the head. Now, this is August in Missouri, where the heat and humidity are terrible. I would know. And the house had no air conditioning. So you can imagine what state they were in when they were found. And even though it appeared that the murderer had rummaged through the house, it didn't appear that anything of value had been taken. With no real evidence and no real suspects, the case went cold. Timothy would later admit to this during his plea deal. That November, 21-year-old Sheila Cole was a student of Southeast Missouri State University in Cape Girardeau studying zoology and chemistry with the dream of being a marine biologist. One evening, she mentioned to her roommates that she was going to make a trip to Walmart. She would never be seen alive again. The next day, her body was found in a rest area bathroom stall over the state line in Illinois, shot twice in the head. Some sources state she had not been sexually assaulted, but had also not been robbed. While this case too went cold, Timothy later admitted that he had abducted her from the Walmart in Cape Girardeau, 
took her back to his trailer in Carbondale, Illinois, sexually assaulted her, and shot her on the way back to Cape, leaving her in that bathroom. And during the times of both of the murders, Timothy had begun molesting his landlord's 11-year-old daughter, which continued for the next two years. So the next year, May 1978, in Marion, Illinois, Virginia Witt had kissed her husband goodbye as he left for work and decided to go to the grocery store. When she returned home and set her grocery bags on the kitchen counter, well, she was met with Timothy. Hours later, when her husband returned home from work, he found his wife naked and lying on their bed. She had been slashed horrifically through her abdomen and had a knife still standing out of her chest. Her autopsy indicated she had died from a combination of strangulation and stabbing. This case, too, went cold until Timothy admitted to it after he was captured. Two months later, in July 1978, he was released from being on parole, if you can believe it. In February 1979, Timothy was arrested and charged with, quote, taking indecent liberties with a child, this being his landlord's daughter, who was now 13 years old. After this, according to prosecuting attorney Morley Swingle, Timothy became the first person in Jackson County, Illinois, to be committed on the sexually dangerous person statute. Very early the next month, making me think he must have been bailed out of jail, he broke into the apartment of 29-year-old Joyce Tharp in Paducah, Kentucky, by breaking a window and entering. He then sexually assaulted her, abducted her, and took her to Carbondale, Illinois, murdered her, and took her back to Paducah and dumped her nude body behind a church. Her autopsy showed she had died from blunt force trauma to the head and strangulation, and it was evident that she had been sexually assaulted. This case went cold until Timothy admitted to it later. Less than a month later, in April 1979, he broke into the home of 51-year-old Myrtle Roop in Mullenberg Township, Pennsylvania. It was said that he had stalked her and followed the nurse home. Timothy then bound her arms and wrists with cord, sexually assaulted her, and strangled her to death. Her body was discovered three days later by a neighbor who had become concerned that she hadn't seen her in so long. According to a true crime blog and podcast, she had been the head nurse and supervisor in the obstetrics and gynecology department at Community General Hospital. This case, too, would go cold. In July 1979, he sexually assaulted a 49-year-old woman. It is as if he was trying to fit in as many as he could before his sentencing for the child molestation charge. And in August of 79, he was sentenced to two years in prison. And yet after only serving about a year, the prison psychiatrists recommended a conditional early release. Now, Guys, I can hear you groaning, but at that time, they had no idea just how dangerous he really was, and he had the degree and worked in emergency medicine, and he looked good on paper. No excuse, of course, but it is a reason. 
and he was, of course, ordered to continue psychiatric treatment, but he moved to a trailer house and got a job at a junior college in southeast Missouri. At this point, Timothy was 36 years old and only three months out of prison. He then promptly traveled to Mount Vernon, Illinois, broke into the home of 72-year-old Ida White, and while she lay in her bathtub taking a bath, began stabbing her repeatedly in the abdomen. She screamed for her life, and a neighbor heard her. They came rushing into her house just as Timothy was leaving through the bathroom window. But because the neighbor didn't get a good look at him, another man wound up being convicted of this murder and died in prison. Timothy continued to sexually assault various women for the next year, and in January of 1982, the body of 57-year-old Marjorie Call was discovered in her home in Cape Girardeau. She had been tied up, sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot. Timothy had stalked her and gained entry into her house through a window. Three months later, he stalked 23-year-old Deborah Shepard to her apartment in Carbondale, Illinois. He raped her and strangled her to death. Because her initial autopsy didn't note any foul play, they believed she had died from a drug overdose of all things. But luckily, her family demanded another autopsy, and the strangulation was discovered. But they still had no suspects. In April of 1982, Timothy raped three different women who were in their 20s, and then the next month, he robbed an elderly couple. And then the next month, he entered through a bathroom window into the home of 65-year-old Mildred Wallace in Cape Girardeau. He tied her up, blindfolded her, raped her, strangled her, and then shot her. Now, this murder is the one that finally got the authorities to realize many of these might be connected because of the similarities between Mildred and Marjorie. But then the murders just stopped. Timothy did go on to rob a mother and her daughter, assaulted the daughter, and then broke into the home of another elderly woman, molesting her, but he didn't murder her. And then finally, in the spring of 1983, 38-year-old Timothy was sitting in his car in a parking lot in Allentown, Pennsylvania, trying to choose his next victim. A woman happened to call the police to report a suspicious-looking man sitting in his car with a gun in his lap, and they immediately came and arrested him. He was taken into custody on charges of, quote, suspicion of breaking the law and possession of a firearm, which, of course, was a parole violation. He attempted to escape the Pennsylvania prison, but he fortunately broke his leg and failed. He was then tried and convicted of indecent assault, robbery, and criminal trespassing charges and was sentenced to two and a half to five years. He served the full five years in the Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, but was then moved to a correctional center in Ina, Illinois, to serve sentences for parole violations and for violating his prior conditional release. Now, my source stated that poor Timothy decided he didn't want to hurt anyone anymore. He quit attending his therapy sessions and stopped trying to convince the officials he wanted to change his behavior. 
They were able to keep him there on civil commitment under the sexually violent predator statute. And thank God for that. He stayed in prison, was described as an exceptional athlete by the guards, and everyone described him as a very likable guy. So for 20 years, Timothy sat in prison and stayed silent about his murders. Then in 2007, when he was 62 years old, the technology advancements caught up with him and with DNA evidence, he was linked to Deborah Shepard. He eventually confessed and was charged with her murder. They began interviewing him about other murders and he eventually confessed to them too. One of the detectives stated, quote, He's a likable person. You're sitting there talking to him and, you know, all the evil that he's done in his life. But it's just hard to believe. End quote. So a deal was drawn up that if he would just confess to all of the murders he had committed, the death penalty would be off the table. The families agreed and so did Timothy. He confessed to nine murders, multiple rapes, assaults, and robberies. After all of the charges and convictions between Missouri, Kentucky, Illinois, Pennsylvania, he would never leave prison, of course. So in a 1983 psychological profile submitted by Dr. Paul Gross on behalf of Timothy stated, quote, his lack of stability was accentuated by a mother who he describes as cold and unaffectionate. In therapy, he was told that he hates his mother and does remember that during the mid-60s, he did feel much hatred for her. Raised by his mother, he became shy and introverted during his adolescence and remembers fondling women in public and wearing feminine clothing. He somehow tries to justify his behavior on his past childhood experiences and once was told by a therapist that he is acting out his anger towards his mother on other women. His rapes have been preceded by intense fantasies of sexual abuse and rape on women. Other than his sexual deviancies, Mr. Cratcher shows no evidence of any psychiatric illness. End quote. And again, this was his profile in 1983. So here we have yet another serial killer who seems to be acting out in violence and murder because of the self-perceived damage from a cold and unloving mother. This is not dissimilar, as I mentioned earlier, from Ed Kemper, Gary Ridgway, and others. Of course, it isn't mentioned that Timothy's mother beat him and belittled him as Ed's mother did. And it was also not said that Timothy's mother paraded around in scandalous or sexy attire in front of him as Gary's mother did. But the mother wound is something that cuts deep, as I am well aware of this concept myself. According to Psychology Today, the best way to think of the mother wound is a loss or a lack of mothering. This is typically a deficit in the mother-daughter or mother-son reflection on how we have experienced parenting or how we parent. While not a specific diagnosis, it is a way of looking at how current codependency behaviors may be linked to missing elements in the past. Children who are raised by alcoholics, drug-addicted mothers or mothers who have mental health conditions, either undiagnosed or untreated, may struggle into their own adulthood. However, 
There are also children who are raised by mothers who do not have these challenges. These are mothers who may provide for the physical needs of the children and even interact with the children in a positive way, but simply do not provide the deep love and attention that children require. They may not have been abusive or neglectful, and they may never have engaged in negativity in their relationships with the children, but they were also always distant and less tuned in to the emotional needs of their children. Signs of the mother wound include never feeling they had their mother's approval or acceptance, concerns about not being loved by their mother or not being loved as much as the other siblings or family members, difficulties in relating to the mother on an emotional level, uncertainty about the relationship with the mother and if it could be lost with a mistake or an accident, always trying to do better or to be perfect to attempt to gain their mother's attention and acceptance and so on. And while this most often does not lead to a person becoming a serial killer, as there are obvious very other serious factors at play, it is another brick in the wall, as they say. These types of feelings throughout childhood reduce self-esteem, feelings of self-worth, and feelings of worthiness to have a positive relationship. Individuals with a mother wound always feel incomplete and lacking in their ability to connect with others, while also having deeply rooted feelings about the need for perfection and control. But we know Timothy was displaying antisocial behaviors even as a child, and though he was above average intelligence and actually earned a college degree, he masked himself as a caring and normal person working as an emergency medical technician and all of that while brutalizing and murdering women. Age and race was of no concern. It was the dominance over them, their fear, and his control that he got off on. We can't know for sure if his situation is nature, meaning he was born different, but he certainly blamed his crimes on nurture, meaning his environment made him that way. But tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, thank you so much guys for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 